0: You're listening to the Skeptics Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to the Skeptics Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, June nineteenth, twenty seventeen, and this is your host Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella, hey everybody, Kara Santa Maria, howdy, Jay Novella, hey guys, and Evan Bernstein.
2: Hello, everyone.
1: So which of you guys are watching the series Black Sales? Um, Not me. I try no, every I, episode. I,
0: the last season though I've only just started.
1: I, yeah, I just finished the you know, it's the last season I saw so I saw the season finale. What an amazing series, Kara, If you haven't really? watched it, it's only like 38, 39 episodes over four seasons. Just binge the whole thing. It's really awesome.: What's everybody. it on?
3: FX, it, AMC?: it, it, Stars. It's on Stars. Stars, okay. stars, are irrelevant stars on the Stars. stars. I do have that network. I shall watch.
1: It, I didn't find, that, find this out until I was almost done with the series, but it's actually a prequel to Treasure Island, to the book Treasure Island. Oh, um, cool. But they expand a lot on, you know, the, the prehistory, like oh, the, the pirates who were – they are legends in the time of the book, you know, Treasure Island, but they really could flesh out their stories. What, what I love about it is the writing – yeah, we we talked about uh, like the Alien movie and how it was terrible because the plot keeps getting advanced by the characters being incredibly stupid to the point that it takes you out of the, the story. Yeah. What I love about Black Sails more than any other series I've ever seen is that the plot is consistently driven by every character being bold, direct, and smart. You know, yeah, sometimes naked. Well, smart is key. Sometimes naked. Yeah. Naked but helps too. But it's amazing. Too. They're just so. I mean, that's <laughs> you could tell that the writers like. All right, every character is just going to be balls to the walls, fearless and bold, and that just every episode just amazing. And it's amazing how well it, that that could drive plot. It isn't. I mean? It is
0: incredible. The the acting and the writing and even the cinematography are just. Top, top notch. And if you hear pirate and you're thinking, ah, you know, and peg leg and walk the plank, don't even go there. As awesome huh. as that is, it's not that <laughs> yeah. at all. It's, there, is it's so there is a keel hole. There is a keel hole. And it's so dense. The The plot and the machinations can be so dense that sometimes you, I feel like I need to watch the episode again just to really follow the details of what exactly is happening. It's not, it's not lighthearted stuff. This stuff, the, the political intrigue, it reminds me literally of Game of Thrones. It is, mm. some of the actors are just so over the top that I just, I, not, and in a yeah, good yeah. way, they're just so good because you know how pirates are any pirates. I don't care if it's if, if it's the cheesy pirates or the serious pirates. They are like Steve said, they when they say stuff, it's often quite dramatic, right? It's piratey stuff. It's gonna not be it's gonna it's gonna not be give me a cream puff. It's gonna be something that has weight to it. And these actors pull it off. Time after time after time, they say, this, they say sentences that most people would sound very goofy and very silly and not pull it off. They pull it off every time.
1: And I love the fact that they're all recognizably pirates, but none of them are cliche. You know yes. what I mean? It's weird. They really just did a fantastic job. I, every, I love everything about the series. So if you're looking for a series to binge over the summer, highly
0: recommend Black Sails. Even very the very, intro right. itself is Good. worth watching. Just yeah. the intro is
3: wonderful. That's good because um I did binge Orange Is the New Black and so I'm low again. I need a I need yeah. a new hit. How was that? How is that? You know, I, hear I you. love Orange Is the New Black. And I mean, about it. Yeah, it's a really good show. It's it is over the top in that it's kind of got like a fantastic quality to it. Everything's slightly overacted, everything's a little bit stilted. That's just the tone of the show. But um once you kind of accept that and you understand it, it's it's really quite good.
1: Yeah, it's you know, it's, I think the bar is so high now. There's such there's such mm-hmm. good programming on TV. That's why when you watch something that's mediocre, <laughs> it's like this is
0: shit. Yeah. This
4: is not what I'm expecting. So, you know, a lot of Star Trek fans on this show, but I watched the the trailer for the new Star Trek series, Mm -hmm. Star Trek Discovery, that's coming out uh, supposedly this year, and it really does look like the TV show is fully movie quality. Like, if they just said, this is a movie, you would think, yep, that's a... A trailer to a movie,
1: but how's the writing going to be? Again, you know, I'll be so disappointed if they don't have decent writers. Well, that's, yeah, it's, you know.
4: that's stuff we won't know.
0: And one big concern: there, things have happened with this new show that are concerning. They had they had picked a showrunner initially that was a wonderful choice. This this was a guy that is well known. Uh, in the Star Trek world, the Star Trek universe mm-hmm. makes great ideas. Everybody had confidence in him to be a great showrunner. And then he was gone. He, for something happened, he, he left uh-huh. and everyone's like, Oh, now what's going to happen? So that was a big hit that, that it took. If you're kind of following some of the behind the scenes stuff. So, and, uh, and I'm still not sure. Yeah. Jay, you're right. The, the preview looked really good. The trailer looked wonderful. But, you know, you never know. You can't of course. You know, put too much into the trailer. So we'll see. We'll see. But it looks wonderful so far.
1: Not that we have any expectations about Star Trek. <laughs> Star Trek. <man. laughs>
3: yeah, you know. not that you guys are interested in that sort of yeah. thing. No, we don't we're Star not invested now. in that, that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah like I, you I, know,
0: I, I was concerned. Uh, were you guys concerned about the, the, uh, the setting, the time frame? You know, before classic Trek? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, like, I do like wow. that. I like it. I you do know, like that. That's fine. Because you know, it's grittier.
1: A, Cause they ruined everything. They, everything is so, is too advanced beyond, you know, past, you know, the Captain Kirk years. <laughs> they've ruined everything. The, the pre, the prequels are more gritty cause they can't just like transport everywhere. And you know what I mean? It's, it's actually has much more potential. They're more raw and out there.
0: I don't know, Steve. I, I don't know if I agree with that. I want to see stuff that's going on after Next Gen, some cu- you know, cutting some new ground. Here, you're kind of straightjacketed a little bit. You can't make the crazy moves that you could make on, in an open end, uncharted territory like after Next Gen. With this, you you know, you can't do. There's things you can't do. You just can't do it. You know, unless you're talking alternate alternate timeline, then all all bets or are off. Or how about that. this
1: new plot lines? They could create and destroy entire civilizations for all I care. Yeah. You can't kill off the Romulans because you know they're going to be around later right. on. But just yet, yeah, just, it, it forces them to write new plot lines. There's Ooh, a whole frigging universe out there. Just do it.
4: I'm fine with that, Bob. I don't care like that they're, they, they're on a timeline and they have to follow that. The bottom line is I want to see great character development. I want to see relationships on the screen. And I want the stakes to be high in a sci-fi Star Trek environment. That's the formula.
1: And bold characters making bold decisions, right? I like prequels.
4: <laughs>
3: Yeah, I do too, (laughs) Kara. I think prequels are great because there are a lot of unanswered questions in some of our favorite, like, lore. And, okay, my example of this, because I'm not a Star Trek nerd, would be Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Like, I've been watching Better Call Saul as – probably a lot of people listening have. It's very good. Yeah, yeah, and anybody who loved Breaking Bad really wants to know what (laughs) happened to Salamanca, and we're going to find out soon. And it's so cool to see like how people got to where they were and how they have the features and the character traits that they have in the the prequel.
1: That's the thing, and people have written that about Better Call Saul, that what's interesting is if you watched the breaking bad you know mm. where they get to mm-hmm. and but then you don't they, know
3: how they got there They don't
1: know how they got there not only that they, they set up very interesting situations like holy shit how are we going to get mm-hmm. to to point b from point a so they that's how you make a prequel interesting how yep. you know how are we going to get from what the, the what they're setting up to where i know we're going to end up and yeah and that could be really intriguing
3: and that's the great thing about, you know, what you can do when there are good quintessential characters that are good and evil because it's so great to see how did the evil person become the evil person? What mm. happened along their lifespan or, you know, what kind of great war were they involved in blah 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 in order to to have them become the nemesis later. And especially when characters are really complex where they were like the good guy at one point in history and then something bad happened and they turned. <laughs> like, that's always What Does fun that sound like <laughs>
2: I mean, you're that's basically talking was. about Darth yeah.
3: Vader,
4: right? <laughs> oh, it's, it's, I'm trying to sound snoring. Like Darth pulp. Vader? Was that <laughs> good? that, that was, was like a, a, snor- <laughs> that was a snoring Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, I
1: think that was Sleepy
4: from the uh, Dance. It. <laughs> it's. Ho- Kara, just say the words whole purr, very breathy, and you'll get it.
3: Whole pur. Yeah.
2: Oh, oh purr. that's a little creepy. Like that. <gasps> purr. That's, yeah, there you go. Don't do that again.
3: Okay. <laughs> All right. All right, Kara, get us started with what's the word? Ooh, the word this week is a fun one. It was recommended by Jay Schneiderman. And he says, as someone who works in human spaceflight, um, cool, Jay, I have found a word that non-space nerds always think I'm misspelling or mispronouncing. If you listen or watch a lot of coverage from NASA or other space agencies, you're likely to run into them. So I think it would make an interesting what's the word. The word is nominal, and it's often confused for normal. Nominal in engineering, especially aerospace, means within acceptable limits or as according to plan or design. However, this has about half a dozen different meanings outside of aerospace. This makes it a contronym slash auto antonym, as depending on the context, it can mean within an expected value range or well below the expected value. That is actually really interesting. And then he says, I'd like to know more about the different usages and etymology. Well... Let's do it then. Okay. <laughs> and Thank the, Yeah. Thanks for the recommendation. It was a great one. So it's true. When you look at, um, definitions across dictionaries, there, yeah, it's right around a half a dozen definitions. Now, the, the first one that always pops up because it is really related to the etymology of the word is the relationship to a noun or a name. So something is nominal I mean if it is noun ish. It's it's an adjective referring to a noun or relating to a noun, but it's also an adjective relating to or referring to a name. So here we go. The streets have names like Third Avenue, but the resemblance to Manhattan is only nominal. So it's, it's an adjective referring to the word noun or name. But then it gets a little more interesting. As he sort of mentioned, existing or being something in name or form only of... Being or relating to a designated or theoretical size that may vary from the actual. So an approximation. I think this is a common usage in engineering. So the nominal size of something is the size of it on its plans. But then there's going to be an actual size that might be a little bit different. But usually so long as it's within a certain range or within certain limits, then it's, n- it's nominally acceptable. Does that make sense to everybody? It does. Okay. And then there's more in economics expressed in terms of current prices or figures without making allowance for changes over time. So the nominal exchange rate would be the exchange rate right now as we are describing it. And then of course, as mentioned by Jay, here's a really random sort of subuse, but it's one that we use a lot, trifling or insignificant. That person only had a nominal involvement in the project. Or, you know, I only got paid a nominal amount for that job. So when Jay mentioned that it could mean right around the same or it could mean significantly less than, that's what he was talking about. Um, And then lastly, look at this. Informal. This is in Oxford's dictionary. It's not actually in Merriam-Webster, which is the American um, standard. Informal, chiefly in the context of space travel, functioning nominally or acceptably. So it gets its own definition there because it sort of relates to the engineering definition, but generally that is referring to plans for physical um, manufacturing. So, you know, a pipeline or something. But if something is functioning nominally, it is functioning acceptably. So when we dig into the etymology, we really get a good, oh, also nominal is used sometimes in statistics. It can be a type of variable, which has like levels, um, but they're qualitative levels. It's something you can't put a number on, like hair color would be a nominal variable. You know, you're either redhead, you know, brown hair, blonde hair, or white hair. That's nominal. There's not really a number you can ascribe to that. Okay. So when we look at the etymology, it's an old word around the uh, 15th century. It started in Latin. Um, and it really does come down to that noun or name definition, which I think were sort of interchangeable back then. So pertaining to nouns or pertaining to names. Um, it really all came from that word name. And then as it started to evolve around the 1620s is when we first saw a use of the word as referring to something being in name only. So you can kind of see how the word shifted over the years to either the name of something or only in name, because they still relate to the same root. And really, in in a way, that kind of describes the shift to a nominal value, because it it was the named value on the blueprint, that was the original value, that was the name. And then I guess I could see that moving out from there um, in the context of space travel, although I don't know the etymology of that change. Um, If something is functioning nominally, then it is functioning acceptably. But I guess it does still kind of relate to within normal limits.
1: Yeah, within acceptable parameters is kind of exactly. how we always interpret And that
3: all it, yeah. sort of were iterations coming out of this idea of like as relating to the name, the first name or the noun. So the first descriptor became those limits. And so long as something functioned within those limits, then it was still nominal. nominal, damn it. Nominal <laughs> right. oh, the last word I said too. Is a nominal cranius, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs>
1: Carrie. you know what? Uh, last week's word was volatile. Mm-hmm. And I came across a use of the word that I knew that we about. we didn't cover? But I, but I don't think we covered it last week. Did we cover volatile and non-volatile computer memory?
0: No, oh, we absolutely did not. Damn, yeah. how the hell... Did, I not Did we think forget of that? that, right? Awesome. So,
1: yeah. you know what that means? A volatile memory is memory that goes away when you turn off the computer. That yeah, makes sense. It's like up.
3: fleeting. It's yeah. fleeting.
1: And non volatile memory is like your hard drive. It stays there even mm. when it's not powered, it doesn't have to be refreshed, et cetera. It's more stable. Oh, I love that. Yeah, volatile and non volatile memory.
3: Yeah, I love these adapted uses where even though they don't directly relate to the original etymology, which as we remember from volatile meant flying, physically flying like birds and butterflies were volatiles. It all so- you can see the chain as the as the language evolves, flying becomes ethereal, it becomes fleeting, and all of a sudden it can be related to all of these other um usages. Yeah. I love yeah. it. It's so cool. interesting.
1: All right, Jay, get us started on the news items. With this, is also a computer related news item. This one is cool.
4: Yeah, guys, uh, what are humans better at than computers? Pattern uh, uh, recognition, crying. Um, love. All right, I heard pattern recognition, <laughs> lying, uh, crying. And love. I said crying, yes. crying. Oh, crying. <laughs> Common sense. All
3: right, you're well, not I, better at poker.
4: I do have uh, some right answers were given. <laughs> okay, with, with nominal interpretation, some of uh, them. <laughs> So one of the things that that humans can do better is unstructured problem solving. This is these are problems like problems that exist with no rules. For example, a good idea would be like think about a person writing a piece of software. A piece of software could have thousands of problems to solve, puzzles to solve, and you really don't know what the specifics are until you get there. Second idea here is acquiring and processing new information. So deciding what is the relevant information from like this huge flood of information that you can get like doing research online. It's complicated to parse through all that data and figure out what's real, what's legit. And even what you're reading needs to be interpreted as well. Even if it's a good source, you have to be able to interpret that data. Arguably, not many people can do this really well, but humans can do this much, much better than software or AI can do. An example here would be you know, a scientist discovering properties of medicine. You can't, you couldn't set an AI out to do that yet. The processing power and the computational power is just not there for it to do it, and the artificial intelligence can't handle that type of thinking. Uh, another thing would be non-routine physical work. So these are just any task in the 3D world, climbing a tree. You know, we could do that way better than machines can do. As of today, we still can drive cars. Maybe, but that's changed, right? That's changing very quickly. It's evolving. Yeah. yeah. And the final one, and Kara hit on this, is uh, being human. Just emo- emotions, being able to comfort each other, being empathic, being able to express yourself artist- artistically, showing emotions, being humorous. its a Social com-
1: interactions in general.
4: Exactly, right? Just it's a combination of all the things that our brain does, that the perception part of it, the expressing part of it, the interpretation of, of human emotions and body language and all that, just a, it's a monumental thing to do that our brains are so good at and AI can't do it yet. But- a lot of what humans do is based on something called relational reasoning. But check this out. Researchers at Google's DeepMind claim they've developed an algorithm that is very good. It's quite good at handling this kind of reasoning. In fact, it's already beaten humans at complex image comprehension. So let me tell you, let me give you a little bit of background, then I'll tell you what DeepMind can do now. There are two different kinds of artificial intelligence, or there, there might be others, but these are the two primary kinds. Statistical, and symbolic. Statistical AI, also known as machine learning, is really good at pattern recognition, but it's not good at raw logic. Symbolic AI is good at determining relationships between things with a a healthy set of predetermined rules, but it's not good at learning things on the fly. But Google has come up with a way to fill in all these holes that, that exist in these two types of AI. They use two different kinds of artificial intelligence. Now, it's an artificial neural network that can perform relational reasoning. It's It functions kind of like the way the brain does, the human brain does today, that has connections between different centers that can do different things really well. So, Steve, give me an example of two or three different places in the brain that communicate to each other and together they make Voltron. <laughs> well... You know, mm-hmm. like. Lightning-
1: the whole brain communicates with itself in a way, so
4: it's hard to even narrow it down. But there's all, but yeah. your brain is communicating with itself, like in a global sense, meaning that it's using all of its different resources to parse through the information and to produce thoughts, feelings, and reality to, yeah. to us, right? Like with if
1: language, for example, there's actually just a recent study looking at language processing. When we we're hunting for a word, that ranges over wide parts of the brain because. You know, we're conceptually searching our understanding of the world in order to find the best word that fits it.
3: So, so, what so they so many d- things. Yeah, you're like right, vision and, and hearing and all those things feed together in that. And yeah. memory and everything. It all probably yeah. – yeah. on some level, I bet it's all being
4: used all the time. You know, it's just always like being pinged on everything that's going on. So what they did at Mind was they took this concept and they said – uh, you know, they use this thing called neural nets that connects tiny programs that work together to find patterns. Now, they've developed this specialized architecture and it's really good at, di- at different things. Like, as an example, one architecture they, they have is good at processing images where another would be good at learning games or, or parsing a language. So, as an example, they they challenge their software to answer questions about the relationship between objects that were found in a single image. So um, visualize you have a a cylinder, balls, and cubes that are all in the same image. They would ask the software the following question. There's an object in front of the blue thing. Does it have the same shape as the tiny cyan thing that is to the right of the gray metal ball? That's a complicated question to ask a a, a piece of software. So what the software does... Is it has different specialty programs now that are doing different processing at the same time. One is really good at processing images, while the other is really good at maybe, you know, parsing through the differences in the colors. And in that that neural network that connects them, that is the bridge between them, takes the aggregate of what these two pieces of software do. And they, keeping in mind, they're communicating with each other, they're sharing information through this neural network. And you know what? It works and and from what deepmind said the the researchers at deepmind they said it's a really simple concept this thing is actually not that complicated you know when you think about it i'm sure that there's massive complexity in the software itself but the way that they're connecting them and they're using this neural network to to have them communicate with each other makes it's it's basic it makes a lot of sense it's easy to understand now check this out the, here's the statistics from that question i asked and existing machine learning alg- algorithms were correct 42 to 77% of the time in that, in that spectrum. Humans could score a, a really good 92% of the time. Google's relation network software was correct 96% of the time. It beat human thinking out in answering the question. DeepMind pulled off a couple of other really cool things, too, but the one that was really impressive, the one I thought was just really interesting, was that it was able to figure out, after looking at an animation of balls, ten balls bouncing, that some of them were connected by invisible springs or rods just by looking at the patterns of motion. Now, think about that. There's 10 balls moving around a screen. Now, to a human eye, you can almost visualize, yeah, those two are connected. They're moving in synergistically, right? They're moving with some relationship to each other. We could do that. But this machine was able, this software was able to see that animation and suss out that it was a rod or a spring that was connecting those two, you know, so it developed a relationship between some of the objects on the screen. That is some serious thinking right there. That's cool. Yeah, so the thing is this is the beginning of what I think is really a simulated brain because imagine like they're saying yeah two or three different little pieces of software that are expert at one thing that do one thing really good and they're connected now they can talk to each other ramp it up take take you know a thousand pieces of software that are good at these little things that can communicate to each other and you can Jay,
1: do you think they could teach it the difference between when to use the word good and when to use the word well
4: in speech? No. You've told me this many times and I, I, I still can't <laughs> get it. I still can't like, lock it in. Now, at what point do we just say language has changed and this is an acceptable? Uh, acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> it's acceptable It's my fault, language. Jay. And we'll at least got, we'll get uh, one tonight. <laughs> yeah. Wait. I'm formally making the word acceptable.
2: A, a, a I really word. like that. Word. It's a combination so of acceptable exactly and, it and testicle.
4: It is. <laughs> That's acceptable. Hey, I know what you're looking at. So anyway, Steve. Yeah. Now remember when we were talking about AI and you're like, look, we're not going to do it. It doesn't. We don't even need it. So I. No, I, I don't, like, don't recall that. That was
2: the conversation. Well,
4: Steve exactly. was Steve was saying like, there's no reason to make it conscious. That's what I mean. Yeah, he was talking about consciousness. Yeah, yeah we don't need to make it conscious. AI. So this, to me, is a way to not have it be conscious, but have it do a lot of things really well.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that. This is, this is not conscious, this software. Think about it. It could, it could perform in in this way, in, in relational reasoning, really well without being conscious. So I think that supports my point, don't you it think? It does.
4: I, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I thought about you when I read this. I'm like, you know, this is exactly what Steve was saying. It doesn't need consciousness to have higher thinking.
1: Yeah, but, it, I mean, it's also – it's scary how far this is going to go, you know? Oh, yeah. Scary files. Mean, well, right. <laughs> <laughs>
4: scary in a good now, way. We, we can't say that this is the beginning because we've been developing software like this, you know, artificial intelligence-like software for a long time. It's but a the, milestone.
1: It's not the beginning, yeah. but we keep crossing these milestones. Yeah. And they are significant, you know?
4: Totally agree. Yeah, this is yeah, a big one. This is a good one,
1: and it, it's it, what's fascinating is like learning what the milestones are. You know, mm-hmm. that's what's yeah. fascinating. I think that's what's the to me as a neurologist, as a neuroscientist, what's most fascinating about this is thinking about well, what are those milestones? What what kind of processing does human brains do well that we're going to need our computers to do good. like like relational reasoning you know now we we understand that process and what it is better because we're trying to duplicate i think that's we're going to learn so much about human intelligence from trying carrying on on this process of developing artificial intelligence yep all right thanks jay bob so at this point in time how solid a theory is the Big Bang. Is it possible to imagine the universe existing without a Big Bang?
0: It depends on what you mean by Big Bang, and that's one of the things I encountered doing research for this, is that the nomenclature uh, can be uh, easily conf- confused. So so what Steve's referring to is that the Big Bang, the Big Bang was in the news this week, and uh, essentially uh, the decades-old decades theories that are designed to remove the infinities from the Big Bang have been shown not to work. Um, so yeah, so about the nomenclature. If you're talking about the hot Big Bang model, that thing is bulletproof. That's not going anywhere. That's that explains our universe incredibly well from say a hundredth of a second on afterwards. So that that goes over things like the expansion of the universe, the origin of the cosmic background radiation uh, that we've talked about so many times, nucleosynthesis itself, uh, the how the how the light elements are forged. Are in the early universe, also the formation of galaxies and large-scale structure, that's the bi- the hot Big Bang model, and that's not going anywhere. That's just way too solid to really uh, have any reasonable doubt. But if you're thinking about the first 100th of a second, that's where things get dicey. That's kind of like the bang part of the Big Bang model um so th- that part of the universe is basically opaque to us it's opaque to our theories and our tools we just get uh, not sure what happened there and uh, and that's because things get wacky at that point in time think about it you go back in time close and close closer to the actual birth of the universe energies and densities uh energy densities and curvatures goes higher and higher and higher and at that point in time it's it spikes to infinity so infinities are not fun physicists hate infinities, and that's where relativity breaks down, everything breaks down. We've got to create some sort of quantum gravity. We've got to unite general relativity and quantum mechanics to really get a handle on this, and we are just not there yet. That's the crux of this news item. So to resolve this problem, to deal with these infinities, physicists have done different things. One of the things that, that seemed like a decent idea, decent theories, uh, involved uh, uh, Stephen Hawking and James Hartle's idea of a no-boundary proposal and this uh, Alexander Vilenkin, his idea of tunneling, quantum tunneling. So those, those two proposals together, they kind of work together and they try to do away in the 80s with the, with these infinities, with the Big Bang. So the no-boundary idea, you may have heard this, uh Hawking has talked about this for quite some time. So the no-boundary proposal treats the universe... Like it's, it's unbounded. It's like the surface of the earth. You could travel around it forever. You could walk or fly forever and you'll never find the edge, at least if you're uh, not a flat earther. <laughs> it also bizarrely treats the universe as having a beginning and an end in time but existing forever in imaginary time. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really kind of crazy stuff uh, but fascinating. Check it out. The tunneling proposal kind of describes the universe essentially tunneling out of nothing uh, which would give the universe a very large curvature but not an infinite curvature so those two things taken together help deal with these infinities so the hope was that this alternative view w- would preserve the hot big bang model but the big bang part would would uh, would produce an early universe that was smooth with no boundary that tunneled out of quantum nothingness no more pesky infinities. So that's kind of what the idea was here, and that's where it rested essentially uh, from the 80s until, of course, very recently. Um, some really, really smart people at the uh, the Max Planck Institute of Gravitational Physics and uh, the Perimeter Institute uh, as well. They looked at the, these theories in a very mathematically precise way. So by that I mean that they can now, with these advanced techniques, they can now finally properly define the theory mathematically, which lets them then look at what the ramifications of the theories would be if they were true. So they could say, okay, let's assume this is true here. What would the implications be? And this is exactly what they did. They discovered that they don't necessarily, that these theories, these two new theories, these two new proposals, they don't necessarily imply a big, beautiful universe that we live in. Um, they had, they had problems. They, by using the Heisenberg uncertainty relation, they showed that the no boundary and the tunneling proposals mean that the smooth universes can appear and that's nice, but the more irregular and weirdly shaped the universe is, the more likely it is to pop up. So that's kind of like, uh, a theory killer in in a lot of ways. So the overwhelming likelihood then is not a nice smooth universe that would continue expanding for billions of years but lots of these tiny curved universes that would pop out of seemingly nothing but then collapse before anything interesting even had a chance to happen. In fact, they would collapse pretty much immediately. So the bottom line then is that these these proposals that that have been around since the 80s to do away with the infinities of the Big Bang, the bang part of the Big Bang, uh, they they don't work. They don't look like they they can work and get rid of these infinities. So for now, we are stuck with the Big Bang theory uh, and all the wonderful infinities that come along with it. For now. And uh, so that's where we are. So that's a kind of a in, uh, kind of a big deal because these no boundary conditions and quantum tunneling have been around for quite some time in with regards to the Big Bang, and t- they don't seem like they they're going to cut it as they stand as this as the theories stand right now. So there we are.
2: In a way, it's a good thing that the scientific method sort of is on display in this sense for for us all to see, and they've eliminated now. It seems these possibilities, and I suppose the theorists can start turning their attention to uh, to some other models.
0: Yeah, I mean, just I mean, we just really I hope we we all live to see the day when they have a really solid understanding of uh, of quantum gravity that we we could really start answering some of these questions. And and who knows, maybe if also if we get a handle on um, gravi- gravitational wave detection, uh, the types of gravitational waves that could uh, illuminate what happened at this instant the big but the universe was born we, that could also kind of give us some clues because right now you know you can't see anything um because of uh what's a photon decoupling you know that 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 whole era for hundreds of thousands of years at the beginning of the universe are shrouded you can't with a telescope you're not going to see it only gravitational astronomy can uh can peer through that veil and uh and we're getting to the point where we can potentially do that in the near future so that would be that would be another great advance oh my god that'd be fantastic
1: and the bottom line is that the big bang theory, as it stands, doesn't completely work. We we know we need some other element.
4: What do you mean when you say when you say element, Steve? What do you mean? Like we're missing a, a concept behind it?
1: Yeah, like like you know the no boundary condition. There's something else that we need to invoke in order to make these infinities disappear.
0: Well, I mean, but isn't that couldn't that something just be quantum gravity? I mean, a fleshed out you know unification of yeah. rel- relativity and. And quantum mechanics. I mean, sh- for yeah, sure. Yeah, but, but that, we don't that, have it now. Right. that That's the key. That—that's You don't need to go any further than that. That's what we need. Quantum gravity. Once we, we have that- We won't until we get it, though. Right, right.
1: Okay, Evan, we're going to go <laughs> to the other end of the spectrum here and talk about some rank pseudoscience. Breathe <laughs> This is- among the uh, stupidest things in the world. Next to among, flat earthers, yeah. Yeah, I think right. flat earthers might, yeah, be, but ha- might be actually well, worse. I, I mean, how many people have <laughs> died
2: as a result of flat earth theory? I don't know. It, it, could- Just that guy who sailed off the. <laughs> yeah, edge. but he proved his point. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, there ends, unfortunately, they, got, they have a head count associated with them.
3: I thought that they were. I thought it was pronounced breatharian.
4: Yeah, that's how I would
2: have pronounced it.
3: Yeah, I think that's how I've heard people say it in, in the press. Like when they're like, I'm a breatharian. I only eat air. Well, that's part, that's part of the problem <laughs> right, is that well, from
2: only consuming air, they've run into this mispronunciation problem.
0: <laughs> I They see. should just
2: call themselves air arians Oh, yeah. Or, or, or how about Aryans? That works, right? Um, oh, oh, hmm, man. Oh. <laughs> no. Take it. I didn't even no take baggage. it. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, God. <laughs> I <like> that. Well, <laughs> as far as the news item this week, I a lot of the listeners here probably have come across it. I know it hit about a dozen or so of my aggregates. Um, So I imagine people are going to be familiar with this. Now, the folks' names here are Akahi Ricardo and Camila Castello. They call themselves Breatharians. And they claim that they survive primarily on energy that exists in the universe and in themselves.
1: In the form of hamburgers.
2: (laughs) That's that's the Randy part, which they claim that they've forgotten what it feels like to be hungry. Here's a couple of uh, nice quotes from them. Uh, Camilla says that humans can easily be without food as long as they are connected to the energy that exists in all things and through breathing. Well, I, I admit that breathing is very important. The whole exists in the energy <laughs> of all things sounds a little bit like Jedi lore. Uh, she says for three years, Akahi and I didn't eat anything at all. And now we only eat occasionally, like if we're in a social situation or if I simply want to taste a fruit. It's about understanding cosmic nourishment, not just physical nourishment. Cosmic and li- nourishment and cosmic living without food. limits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they had started as I well started their their path towards this as vegetarians. They turned into raw vegans, then to something called fruitarian,s which I think I figured out quickly what that is, and then finally dangerous. breatharians. Oh yeah, <laughs> dangerous is right. It's proven to actually be, in certain cases, a deadly mixture of pseudoscience and cultish behavior. So, prertherism has been linked to the deaths of several people. Uh, one example from 1999, uh, Verity Lynn, a 49-year-old Australian whose emaciated body was found on a mountain in northwest Scotland, alongside a diary recounting her 21-day fast and a copy of a book by the founder of breatharianism known as jasmuheen yeah mm. so she's she's an interesting character i suppose she's perhaps the uh the face of breatharianism uh, breatharianism uh these days uh, her real name is ellen grieve she's an australian former financial advisor and she says we can get all the nutrients we need from prana which is the universal oh God, life prana. force right she claims she hasn't eaten since 1993, although she admits she drinks herbal teas and confesses to the occasional taste orgasm in following chocolate or ice cream. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, so it might be a piece of chocolate, it might be a mouthful of cheesecake, something like that, right? And uh, several interviewers have found her house full of food. She claims the food is for her husband. And you know apparently he's not into the whole breatharian thing, but but, <laughs> but she is now here's a th- listen to this she has apparently over five thousand followers worldwide, and people pay a couple grand over two thousand bucks to attend her seminars in which she tells people about things like this that her diet is possibly changing her chromosomes. She said a person on the Bretherian regime. Will ch- Their DNA will change to take up more hydrogen and is developing from 2 to 12 strands.
0: Would that be a duodeca helix? What would what that
4: be? What would 12 helices
0: 12 be?
3: 12-stranded. DNA. Yeah, I mean literally, if that
4: were the case, she would she would be like the alien. She would she would not look human anymore. Right. If that
3: were the case, she would be a marvel of modern science and everybody would be fighting to study her.
2: Yep. Mm-hmm. When she was confronted about that specific claim, she said, Oh, I wasn't talking about myself. I just meant there are other people who are who are that. You know, she mm-hmm. so that you know it was her way of getting out of uh things like the the James Randi Million Dollar Challenge. I didn't mean yeah. Yeah. no
1: for food. I <laughs> <laughs> was just hyperbole. And yeah. very little food.
2: <laughs> right? And that's the other part of all this is that they 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 do have food. Is what they is what really is going on. They say it's minimal, very minimal. It's it's yeah. obviously enough to to keep them alive and and keep them going, so it's not that minimal per se. And frankly, they've been found almost I think on every occasion to be cheating at some point. Like oh, yeah. the, like the time James Randy was uh investigating a guru of some sort who also claimed that, you know, he did not need any food or water to uh, to sustain himself. And then one night, Randy just, I think, probably followed him or saw him leave the hotel. So Randy followed him. He went across the street to the Burger King and came back to the hotel. And Randy confronted him in, like, the parking lot saying, hey, what are you doing there? <laughs> <Basically>, <laughs> that, totally... that guy's
4: reaction. Oh! Uh-huh. No, he, said,
2: he said, I just want to smell it.
4: <laughs> no
2: he didn't. Yes, he no not.
3: he didn't. <laughs> so,
2: so this is the kind of fraud that is inherent in things like the breatharian yeah. movement, you know.
3: Are all the breatharians like super 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 like anorexic skinny? No.
2: Well, they look quite healthy. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't I wouldn't say anorexic, right, Steve? I I Although I imagine there are some cases in which some people –
3: There must be cases of anorexia. Who have, yeah. who have tried this. Yeah.
2: It's, it's been studied. It's been looked at. Um, experts, although they don't have – they can't put a number exactly on how much time you can – uh, continue to survive without food or water. It depends on your environment. There are other external factors. Broad consensus yeah. seems to rest somewhere between seven water and ten days. Water is days. Yeah, if... dot da-
3: Water... Yeah, water's like water's three days, and, it, right? and they said
2: in some cases, depending on where you are on the planet, hours. You can't go a day... You can't um, go a yeah, day without it. surviving. With no it's water.
3: Tricky. Yeah, like, like in equatorial places. That's probably true.
4: Yeah, so this to me... The whole thing seems utterly ridiculous because first anybody can conduct a test to prove them wrong it is the easiest thing to prove wrong as long as they'll comply to one you know one protocol do not leave this room for 5 days or 3 days you know and the other thing too that you know, there's lots of different ways that you could utterly debunk this if the people are willing to be tested first if they're not eating and you know they're perfectly healthy. Do these people have bowel movements? And would they have bowel movements if they're if they're consuming no calories? I think the answer would be no. They shouldn't really.
1: So you're consuming no calories, then no. Makes sense. Yeah, well,
3: right. Maybe so... they would
2: crap photons or, or rainb- rainbows.
3: <laughs> They'd right? shit. they shit rainbows. <laughs> <No>. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's a cool waste product. Jay uh, actually, uh, Jazmuhin <laughs> tried it once uh, to as as means of proof that it does work, and it was observed by a real doctor about this uh, this fast that she went on she made it to i think the 4th day and she started to show medical signs that you know she was starting to break down pupils became dilated her speech was slow uh certainly dehydration and her pulse had doubled and they feared kidney damage so they decided we're shutting this down. We're not going to be part of this test anymore.
1: They shut it down before her kidney shut
2: down? And here's what – you want to hear the special pleading she, she invoked afterwards? Okay, so she said that um, uh, she failed because on the first day of the test, she had been confined in a hotel room near a busy road, which kept her from getting the nutrients she needed from the air. She said, I asked for fresh air. 70% of my nutrients come from fresh air. I couldn't even breathe. Yeah.
3: Wait, where did the other 30% come from? <laughs>
2: Light, I suppose, and they, but but observers said that the last three days of the test took place at a mountainside retreat where she could get plenty of fresh air and where she claimed she lives relatively happily. So, you know, special what? pleading as what? as always when they <laughs> exactly exactly. So four day, you know, four days of the test. The first day, yeah, she was in a hotel room, but the but the remaining day, she was basically in nature, in the wilderness, essentially. Yep. Mountainside retreat. So, so much for that.
1: Reminds me of the yogic flying, you know, like they're just hopping, you yeah. know. Bouncing on the but bed. they convince yeah. them they're flying. Yeah. So they're like, oh, I'm like mostly surviving on air. I still have the occasional hamburger, but you know it's just yeah, for flavor. Yeah,
4: only, only once or twice a day, I, yeah. so I
2: can smell it.
3: Isn't the quote-unquote Barbie doll woman a breatharian? The woman with like obvious severe mental illness who has had like a hundred plastic tons surgeries. of plastic surgeries to make herself look like a Barbie doll. I, I,
2: don't, I don't. I don't know. know. I'm never brave enough to actually is. click on those links because I'm afraid I'll see too yeah, many pictures. I th- I
3: think she claims to be, yeah, Valeria Lukyanova claims to be a breatharian. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of the criticism that revolves around this particular news item this week is that every few years these stories do come up and the media really does fail to put it in the proper perspective that this is absolute 100% nonsense from the get-go. Not even giving it some kind of equal or fair share time of being anything legitimate. It deserves zero, zero. Um, Yeah attention mm-hmm. other than to say how, you know, fraudulent and dangerous it is.
1: I agree. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses.
3: I know we say it a lot, but we at the SU love to learn. And I know that you guys do as well. And the great thing about The Great Courses Plus is that there is so much to learn about from astronomy to physics to psychology, even photography. There are over eight thousand different lessons that you can take.
4: You guys can stream The Great Courses Plus lectures on any smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV, which is awesome. Or you can download the videos and watch them offline.
1: Yeah, we're in the middle of watching The Theory of Everything, The Quest to Explain All Reality. If you want to know more about physics, from the very basics to the cutting-edge ideas about the nature of the universe, life, and everything, then this is the course for you. It's really, really a great way to package how we conceptually approach our knowledge of the universe. And at the end, it gets into things like how many dimensions does our universe have? Really cool questions like that. I highly recommend it.
0: Sign up for The Great Courses Plus, and as a listener of this podcast, you can watch this and any of the courses free for one month by using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics.
2: Yep, get a free month. You're going to love it. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics.
1: All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, we got a trio of pseudosciences here. We're starting with breatharians, and now I'm Mm going to talk briefly about biodynamic farming. Have any of you guys ever heard of this before?
2: Sounds legit. It's like
1: organic farming, but worse. (laughs) In fact, this was like the modern organic farming movement actually started with biodynamic farming. It was like the first of the modern organic farming movements. So it's basically if you combined astrology, homeopathy, herbalism, sympathetic magic and organic farming, that's what you would have biodynamic farming. So they do things like planting according to the astrological signs like under a certain Mm. phase of the moon when the moon is in – Venus or whatever you have to plant this way. Uh, they also do a lot of like they take a cow horn. There's lots of like you take parts of a cow and then you put stuff in it and you bury it for a season or two and then you take it out and spread it on your field. Right. So they like horse you take cow maneuver, you put it in a cow horn, you bury it for the winter, and then come spring you have fermented manure <laughs> and that that little handful of fermented maneuver is supposed to like save your whole farm. So it's complete It's complete nonsense, but apparently that this is what the news bit, I read an article that it's on the increase, like increased over 15% last year uh, because organic farming isn't a waste enough of money. People want to waste money even more. Like I think organic farming, it is completely unsustainable. It sells itself as quote-unquote sustainable farming. Like a lot of pseudoscientists, there's often like this patina of either incidental legitimacy or – or fake legitimacy, you know, it's like naturopaths will give you some actual exercise and basic common sense dieting advice. That's not what naturopathy is about. Um, It's not unique to them. It's not new to them, but they sort of incorporate that to say that they're legitimate because we give real advice. Uh, Or you could get exercise doing yoga. You know what I mean? There's Mm -hmm. often massages are fine, you know, even though you're not actually squeezing out toxins. And so this is the same thing. It's like they may actually do some, you know, practices which are good for the soil or whatever. But it doesn't matter because the ba- their very concept is based on pseudoscience. The notion is that the farm has to be the self-sustaining ecosystem unto itself. So they try to minimize off-farm inputs. The problem is, of course, that that's not that's the opposite of what farms are for. You know, the whole point of farm of farms is to export nutrients, right? And if you're going to export nutrients, you have to import inputs or right? you have to import the basic, the nitrogen. If, you, if, if so, this kind of totally internal farming is fine for subsistence farming. Like if you just want to feed yourself, sure. But it's not, you know, we don't have the land to, to use for this. And in fact, in the interview, in the article that was promoting it, it said the farmer that they interviewed said, I'm not trying to feed the world. I'm just trying to feed my neighbor. My neighbors—it's like, yeah, that's the point. You're you're using up all this land to feed you and your very very you know few people. You know, as I know we've said on the show before, half the earth is of the land on the earth is already used for farming and pretty much out of farmable land. Um, so this kind of boutique, premium, self-indulgent kind of farming, which is mostly pseudoscience, is not really a good use of land. It's like
2: it's several steps backwards, frankly, is what it sounds like.
1: Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but unfortunately, it's on the rise. It should be going away. I I do wonder at some point if, you know, as populations increase, we just can't do this. You know what I mean? We just cannot use arable land for nonsense. We talked about the fact that, you know, how much land is being used to grow non-foodstuffs like opium and tobacco, you know, and how much of it is being wasted by – um, farming that's in massively inefficient for upscale an upscale market of people mm-hmm. who are are overfed. You know that can't last forever.
0: Yeah, I wonder if there'll come a point where there's like you know eminent domain. Yeah, it's like, it's like sorry, you can't do this anymore. We gotta we gotta like farm food efficiently on this property. So bye bye. Maybe. I
1: mean, I hope it doesn't get to that point. I hope our you know we level off. Right, and right. But you know it it will get to this point of, unless there is a, a leveling off.
2: Uh, How's, uh, how's climate change impacting the amount of, uh, farmland that's, that's available to us? I imagine it's having negative consequences.
1: Well, it's a mixed, uh, the higher CO2 is actually does increase plant growth to some extent because, you know, plants breathe CO2. Uh, but it is shifting optimal growing land, which isn't good. Again, a lot of times like the the global warming deniers will say, oh, there's no one climate that's the best or the right one for the earth. It's changing all the time. It's like, yeah, it's true. But we sort of built our civilization over around the current climate and having it rapidly change is a little inconvenient, you know? Just a little. <laughs> and yeah, so one thing that – one of the piece of that is that farmland can shift to you know, away from the equator, and it may not be to the most arable land. You know, or or you know, to land that's optimal for farming. Uh And you know, imagine if it's just like the the bread basket. Yeah, if we American lose it. Yeah. yeah, if we lose oh. it because it's a, you know where the growing cycle decreases or whatever. You know, the 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 growing season shortens it could have a have a huge impact and. Plants are not necessarily optimized to take maximal advantage of the increased CO2 to offset it. That's another thing that's, you know, that some people are working on that with, uh, genetic modification to try to, we can partly offset that if we optimize some crops to take maximal advantage of the higher CO2. But right, right now they don't. Just, it creates a lot of unknowns. Um, and again, it's not like there's land that we could move into because we're basically using all the farmable land. So.
4: Yes,
2: it's, land is a zero-sum game for the yeah. most part.
1: And if we lose land to oceans rising,
2: you know, there oh, might, not, oh, yeah. might not
1: be enough uh, yep, another to, to feed right. the world. These, yeah.
2: Sure, sure. All these things add up.
1: But I, I see pseudosciences like this as partly it's just a massive inefficiency and partly it's like a parasite on civilization – you know what I mean? Just sucking <laughs> right. away resources. It's not really doing anything. It's mainly just catering to ideology or self indulgent upscale people. Faking them out with pseudoscience claims that aren't true, like it's healthy or healthier or better for the environment, neither of which are true.
3: I mean, don't you think though that when push comes to shove and there really is a, a much more aggressive supply and demand issue, it, this problem will be even smaller than it is now? I mean, the truth is, it's just a tiny percentage yeah. of actual farming is done this way.
1: Well, that's because by definition, by definition, mm-hmm. traditional farming is on a huge scale. You know? Yeah, exactly. And and you can't. Do organic farming on that scale. But the organic farmers advocates say that you can, but they're just making it up. They really can't. You have to crunch. When you crunch the numbers, you realize, no, where are you going to get the nitrogen from? You have to think about things. So in a way, what we need to do – because they're thinking like, oh, we have to treat the farm like an ecosystem – no, actually we need to treat the planet like an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. We have to think about where the nitrogen and the carbon and the water and everything is coming from and going on a worldwide level because that's our civilization, right? It's a world-spanning civilization. You can't just look at your one tiny little farm. It does. That's not really the perspective that we need. And 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 the, the notion that you can like because that the farmer says we just need everyone to be doing this. No, we, we can't have everybody doing this. By definition, it just won't work. You you can't just scale up what you're doing at that tiny scale.
3: No, you can't. I mean, there are like there are interesting workarounds that use hmm, science. You yeah. know, these closed farming systems, these vertical farming systems, massively indoor farming systems. They're massively Yeah, inefficient. massively inefficient. Yeah unless individuals want to start growing their own food, which you just can't expect everybody to do that. it's it's Again, it's like a rich people problem.
1: Yeah. That's the other thing. Do, you, do we really want to go back to a time when 30% of the workforce were working on farms? Is that supposed Surf to be them. a good no. thing?
3: Surf no, not at all. I mean, I want to have a little garden, right? We're doing an exterior renovation. I'm really excited about having a raised garden, but that doesn't mean I'm going to grow everything I eat. It means I'm going to grow the things that I can figure out how to grow without killing yeah. them. I have
1: a garden every summer. It's fun. You grow food. You eat fresh food. You know, vegetables and stuff. It's great. Yeah. But it's but a tiny percentage even... of my calories that
4: I have. Exactly. If like you had to grow is. all your
3: food. Well, First imagine if all, you had to keep your own cows.
4: Yeah. It's just, it's, it's untenable. You can't do it.
3: Yeah.
1: I have better things to do than just growing my own food. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, you know, how we're going to massively, the the fact that so few people can grow enough food to feed everybody is actually one of the great efficiencies of our modern civilization. So it frees up so many people to do other stuff, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I was just watching a a show talking about, you know, automated farming and the levels of automation. And they're saying they're pretty much at the point where one person can farm like 10,000 acres. One person can do a lot of of robots.
2: Yeah. Well, one
0: person can oversee that control the whole process and they're they're quickly getting to the point where you just won't need hardly anybody
1: all right one more pseudoscience you are you going to tell us about coconut oil
3: ah uh, this is a great oh story okay i don't know why i'm i'm especially excited about this um <laughs> in a sort of like schadenfreude kind of way which i feel really bad about saying but so many people out here where i live in la are like Cuckoo bananas for coconut oil. They think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. They think that it's so healthy. And the truth is that a lot of people think that apparently. A survey s- uh, reported that 72% of the American public rated coconut oil as a quote healthy food. 72%. Well, you want to know why coconut oil is not very good for you? It's, because oil. it's basically pure saturated fat. Fat. Well, very there funny. are oils that are way better for you than coconut oh, sure. oil, and it's it really comes down to the level of saturated fat that's contained within that oil and what it actually does to your LDL, which is a you know yeah quote unquote bad cholesterol. More um of the to protein. Av- yeah I try to avoid using those kinds of terms, not the not the one that you just used, Bob that's that's appropriate. low but density that's, the co- that's how it's
2: commonly, referred but
3: yeah, we it's commonly common. refer to that as quote bad cholesterol. It's really bad in the sense that if it is too high and your HDL is too low, that's problematic. And also high LDL has been um linked statistically to um a hardening of the arteries and an increased risk of heart attack and stroke. We know this though. We know that having high levels of LDL, having low levels of HDL um can uh are related to. I think I have to word it that are highly correlated with cardiovascular risk. This is not anything that's new, but what is new is that the American Heart Association put out a presidential advisory called Dietary Fats and Cardiovascular Disease. It was actually just published on June fifteenth, 2017. And it's a really, really um, intensive, long report that's all based on pretty solid science. You know, they tried to look for the highest quality studies that they could. They tried to look at um, the newest scientific evidence available. And they, here's a good Pull from the abstract. In summary, randomized controlled trials that lowered intake of dietary saturated fat and replaced it with polyunsaturated vegetable oil reduced CVD, which is cardiovascular disease, by about 30%, similar to the reduction achieved by statin treatment. Wow. So, yeah, taking statins to lower cholesterol and, and, um, in effect, try and improve your cardiovascular health or try and, I guess, reduce your cardiovascular disease. What it works just as well to just eat better, just eat a little bit better. And so, when depends on your genetics, okay?
1: Oil- don't, 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 okay, don't shame people for taking medication if you need it. If you have no, of certain genetics not. or if diet's not enough, some people, you know...
3: Yeah, 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 of course. And I, I know many, many people who take statins. My parents take statins yeah. and it's it's life-saving for them. But what I am saying is that if you are eating high, high levels of saturated fat, you it's could have as much of an improvement if you switch those over yeah, yeah. to polyunsaturated fats. And so let's look. It, it Within the study, they actually did... um include a pretty handy dandy table here it is that shows the fatty acid composition of fats and oils and here's something interesting that i even i was like pretty unaware of this if you look at the saturated fats within uh saturated fat in grams per 100 grams of these different oils canola oil for example has seven grams of saturated fat 63 grams of monounsaturated fat and 28 grams of polyunsaturated fat. Okay, so 7 grams of saturated fat in canola oil. Um, What's another one we often use? Olive oil, 14 grams of saturated fat. Lard, 39 grams of saturated fat. Lard. Butter, 63 grams of saturated fat. Oh,
2: gosh. That's why I... I
3: Um, Tallow. So beef oil, just cooking in like beef tallow, 50 grams of saturated fat. coconut oil, 82 <laughs> grams of saturated fat. See, uh, Co- uh, coconut oil and palm kernel close, oil so. have the highest rates of saturated fat of any of the oils that are basically on the market, and their polyunsaturated fat in coconut oil, two grams. Mm-hmm. Two oh. grams of polyunsaturated mm-hmm. so it's grams. It's so high in these dangerous fats. It's just the, one of the most dense things you could possibly eat. and that does translate to these LDLs, these basically these lipids or um, lipid, what are they called lipoproteins in your bloodstream. It, 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 you're just increasing the level of them that you would find there. So here's a little bit more directly from the study um, because they looked at a lot of new trials – and pointed out a lot of pretty interesting things. So there was a study between coconut oil and vegetable oils high in monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats. So let's say um, they looked at individuals who were eating coconut oil versus individuals who had the same intake as canola oil. So they also looked at the effects of butter and safflower oil. Um, Butter and coconut oil raised LDL- Uh, cholesterol compared with safflower oil. Butter did it more than coconut oil, um, but coconut oil still raised it significantly. And those who took vegetable oils high in monounsaturated fats versus those who took coconut oil did not see an increase in their LDL cholesterol. And remember, we're talking about LDL, 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 because you may have read some more recent reports, um, those of you who followed the kind of nutrition literature, um showing that it it's not a really good idea anymore to link hdl to cardiovascular disease if you specifically just look at hdl on its own it's not a very good predictor uh, of much but looking at ldl s- still holds that strong correlation um and then also looking at the relationship between your hdl and your ldl uh, so coconut oil raised okay a recent systematic view found seven controlled trials, including those two that I just talked about, that compared coconut oil with monounsaturated or polyunsaturated oil. So some of them were vegetable oils and some of them were in um, other areas. Coconut oil raised LDL cholesterol in all seven of these trials, and, and it did so significantly in six of them. And they did not find a significant difference between raising the raising of LDL in uh, subjects who took coconut oil versus butter, beef fat, or palm oil. So basically anything that had a very high saturated fat content seemed to raise LDL, whereas those with lower saturated fat and higher monounsaturated fats did not. And so here is basically the crux of the coconut oil portion of this American Heart Association report. Quote – Because coconut oil increases LDL cholesterol, a cause of CVD, and has no known offsetting favorable effects, we advise against the use of coconut oil. So the American Heart Association, point blank, is saying you should not eat coconut oil. It's not healthy. Yeah, so I think you're
1: right, Carrie. I think there's two basic pathways to, to how do we get to the point where the, the coconut oil is a fat health fed when the evidence mm-hmm. shows that it's horrible for you? one is gurus, basically gurus extrapolating from basic science and they don't know what they're talking about they don't understand the relationship between basic science and clinical science, and they're just mm-hmm. looking for shit to say so that's wow. that's one, but two is much more cynical, and we know this happens as well is that some marketer. You know, yep. gets a supply of something. It doesn't matter what it is. They corner the market or they figure out some company yeah, in yeah. Bangladesh somewhere can sell me this purple thing or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. They secure the supply and then they promote it as a health food because they already have the supply of it. They over, they've cornered the market on it. And then mm-hmm. they just start whatever, just getting – you know, people to say that it's, that it's the latest health fad.
3: And it's, it's, it's interesting how that just snowballs. Like certain things take off and certain things don't. Mm-hmm. But I think coconut oil is a good example of one that, I mean, at least out here in LA, every health food store sells it by the vat and yeah. people are cooking All their food in it. They're using it in their salad dressing. They're using it as the emulsifier for almost everything they cook. And they use it as moisturizer and hair conditioner. And they're Mm -hmm. putting it all over their bodies. And of course... There's nothing wrong with that. Like there's no – I'm not saying that it works. I think it has moisturizing – it's oil. So of course it has moisturizing properties. It's not dangerous to put coconut oil in your hair or to rub it on your arms unless you have an allergy. So fine if that's a cheaper, easier substitute for you or you like the way it smells or whatever, that's great. But putting it in your body, thinking that it's going to have some sort of magical benefit, no. What
0: what galls me – what it's really surprising – I guess not surprising, but I'm not a nutritionist, but if I was going to evaluate a cooking oil, the first Mm -hmm. thing, the first thing I look at, well, well, what are the, what are the, uh, saturated fats look like? And that, Mm -hmm. that's it. You don't need to go much farther than that. As soon as you see that that's off, that's off the hook, you're like, whoa, whoa, of course I'm not going to eat that. Look how high the unsaturated, the saturated fats are. Okay. Well, thanks, Kara. Uh, we're going to do one
1: email this week. This is actually a series of emails that is a follow-up to a topic that I talked about last week because I made a, I made a mistake in discussing the uh, human metabolism. So just for, as background, I want to point out that a lot of – when these the – technical things like, like this sometimes come up on the show when they're unscripted. Like we, we didn't prepare for them. Um, and we either have to do like some fact-checking while we're recording and sometimes we do that. Sometimes I do it in post-production. Um, I actually spent a lot of time you know on Saturday morning when I'm post-producing the show. Like if I hear any fact that I am not certain of, I'll look it up right then and there and just and, and you may you may hear me break in with even though as much as I try to make it sound the same, you could tell once when I'm doing the ADR, you know, the adding the audio after the fact. But this last week there was you know some unexpected technical details came up. I was winging it on my memory, meant to fact check it. And then my daughter was graduating on Saturday, and I was rushed in doing post-production on the
0: show. Damn her.
3: <laughs> well, I was- can't believe she sh- finished high dude. school. She
1: was supposed oh, to graduate gosh. on Friday. So get this. Yeah, what the hell? This is a side story. but So she was supposed to graduate on Friday, and then the weather forecast was for rain, and the principal wouldn't just commit to either having it indoors or delaying it you know, to a different time, and we were literally getting like these hourly updates. Then I hear, like, what? the mayor's daughter was graduating, and that was some there was some politics involved with that, and there was just this craziness like, we they wouldn't commit. So I'm here, like, I need to know when I need to do my post production on the show, so I have to go, to, you know, Saturday morning to her graduation. They ended up moving it to Saturday morning outside and it was fine. Beautiful. Uh, but the mayor couldn't be there because I like, guess that's what they were trying to avoid is like the mayor having to miss the thing. But whatever. So anyway, so I'm scrambling at the last minute to get the show done. And I actually had to send everybody on ahead without me and I was like just showed up in time for the graduation. So mm-hmm. anyway – that's not really an excuse. I'm just saying that's what happened. Um, so, all right. So We can't
3: know everything off the top of our head.
1: I know, but I do, I do honestly have a process to try to make sure these things minimize the mistakes that slip through. And then when they do, we'll just yeah. fix it. So we were talking about the fasting exercise and gluconeogenesis and all that stuff. So rather than going through what I said wrong, let me just say the, the real information. Okay, so for a little bit of background, we can store calories as – calories in the form of adipose tissue, right? So the three macronuc- macronutrients, like our fatty acids, protein, and glucose. If we have, we can store extra fatty acids as adipose tissue. We can, if we have more glucose than we need at the moment, we store that as glycogen in the liver. We mm. can't really store extra protein. You, you have the protein in your Muscles in your body, but there's no place where we store up extra protein, right? But do we have
3: circulating amino acids or anything like yeah,
1: that? Yeah, well, yeah, but that's not, that's very insignificant. But that's just right? what's, no, what's usable yeah, right then. Yeah. It's very volatile, Kara. It's mm. not, huh, it's I not see. there's no Bleaching. store, there's no store of protein other than your actual muscles, right? But fat is stored calories. Glycogen is stored glucose. So when, when you eat, And your blood sugar rises, you shift into glycogen storage to get your blood, you get your blood sugar down. Blood sugar, you know, glucose goes into the cells. That's what the insulin does. And you use the sugar for, for calories, for energy as an energy source. Uh, when you're, when you, you're, it's been a while since you've eaten, your blood sugar drops, you convert glycogen to glucose, right? Uh, so if all goes well, you could maintain a fairly steady blood level of glucose using the glycogen in your liver as a buffer. Now there's uh, two basic tissues in the body that need glucose, uh, the brain and blood cells. So the, the energy you can get, the metabolism you can get from glucose is a lot faster. You can get a lot more energy from glucose than you can from fatty acids. But you can burn fatty acids directly directly. For fuel, so actually the triglycerides in your fat gets broken down into fatty acids and glycerol, which you could get could feed into you know the energy cycle, and you can make energy from them great so but that so when you're burning fat for energy, that is producing a a, a lower metabolic rate of energy than glucose, and your brain can 't use fat, your brain no. has to yeah, use glucose, yeah, your brain needs sugar that's why you know we we store glu we store glucose as glycogen mainly so that your brain always has a constant supply of glucose. So what happens when you run out of glycogen in your liver and your blood sugars are running low and your brain needs glucose your your body could your other metabolism can use the fat but your brain needs glucose. Well that's where gluconeogenesis comes in. So uh mammals can undergo what's called gluconeogenesis where they reverse the breaking down of glucose into pyruvate and then other things for for energy. Um, although it's a very inefficient process, it, it I meaning it uses a lot of energy to do that. Um, you're right. You know, obviously, you have to put the energy in that you're getting out of it in the first place, right? But, but obviously, second law of thermodynamics, you can't get as much energy out when you reverse the process. So the whole thing is a waste, but we do it. We do it because your brain needs glucose.
3: Yeah. We do it so we don't die.
1: Yeah. Now, here's the thing. You, we make, we can make glucose out of amino acids. You make glucose out of protein, basically. We cannot make – and this is what I was thinking of when I got confused. But anyway, you, we cannot make glucose out of fat. Mm. So we either burn fat directly. We burn glucose directly. We could actually make – get energy out of amino acids. But we also can turn amino acids into glucose through gluconeogenesis as an emergency measure so that our brain has glucose. Uh, now, there's also ketones – and mm. ketones can be made out of either amino acids or fatty acids. So either protein or fat can be made into ketones. And ketones also can be used for energy. Um and that's sort of the emergency emergency sort of energy supply when you don't when you can't even make glucose. Um and that's
3: what people on like paleo diets intentionally. Yeah, yeah, which is go
1: into ketosis. There's no evidence that it's beneficial. You know, maybe Yeah, I can, don't think
3: it's that yeah. bad for you unless you're diabetic, right? Or not unless you're diabetic. There's a there's a threshold out after which it's deadly. <laughs> yes, and that's
1: that threshold is called ketoacidosis. So ketones are acidic, and a little bit of ketosis is f- fine physiologically. Again, I don't seem I'm, I'm not my reading of the literature is there's no long term or sustainable
3: yeah. advantage to it. Because I think it happens just randomly, too. Like, we just have times when we don't yeah. have enough sugar. Yeah, you're going like to make normal. some ketones. Fine. It's like yeah.
1: another little safety valve. But if, if, you, if you're so starved or if you're diabetic and you can't – this is why diabetics said it because they, they can't get sugar. They have glucose, but they can't get it into their cells because the insulin – they're either not making insulin or they're insulin resistant. So, mm-hmm. the, so the glucose levels are high in their blood, but their cells are, cells are simultaneously starved for glucose. So then they have to make ketones. For energy, and then when you get past a certain point, you get ketoacidosis. It overwhelms your body's ability to buffer the pH of your blood, and then once you then that's really dangerous. Ketoacidosis is, puts you in a coma; could potentially be fatal. That's really dangerous.
3: Yeah, that's like when you hear people who went into diabetic coma. That's what was happening. They were in
1: ketoacidosis. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. All right. So, so the other thing that I brought up and got wrong was hibernation. So clearly, animals that hibernate, you know, have some skills that animals that don't hibernate have, because they have to be able to go. Like a bear could go for nine months. They have brown fat. Without eating, well, it's not. It's it's more this. So yes, there are differences in the fat, but we have brown fat too. But they have different percentages. But they have lots. Of, yeah, yeah, they have they have more brown fat. But here's the thing. So first, they turn their brain activity way down, mm-hmm. so that their brain doesn't need a lot of glucose.
3: And they're also cold, right? Their physical core body temperature. They, they is bring down a lot their lower. body. They bring down all yeah. of their
1: metabolism, so they go into a minimal metabolism state. And they were so again a slow use of energy. You can get. You can just survive on fat. So they could go for nine months on fat. They still need some glucose. And they do undergo some gluconeogenesis and they will also waste muscle over their hibernation because they need to have some glucose. Mm. Um, so once they go through their glycogen stores, they, they start burning, you know, muscle for gluconeogenesis. They also can get enough water out of their fat stores that they could survive on that. They don't have to drink for months. So they don't pee. They also recycle their urea. That's a, that's a little that's interesting. That's cool. Yeah. So they, they recycle their urea. They, they basically recycle all their fluid. They have minimal loss of water. Um, they get most of their energy from fat and some from muscle. And they can go freaking nine months without eating. Wow. Yeah, but no no mammals can make glucose from fat. Although I did read a couple of studies saying – Maybe it's theoretically possible. They're essentially showed that there is a potential metabolic pathway by which you can get to glucose from fatty acids, but no one has shown that it's actually happening in mammals or in people specifically. Uh, and -hmm. if it did, it was probably in very tiny amounts. And again, it would be very inefficient because there's this long, you know, alternate metabolic pathway you would have to take and it's only theoretical at this point so basically you know the bottom line is at this point in time there's no either none at all or no significant gluconeogenesis from fatty acids it's only from amino acids which again is why you don't want to fast right because you don't want to burn muscles. You want it, ideally you would have a nice little steady state of glucose for your brain, a nice, you know, steady state of of calorie burning and you're burning through your fatty acids for the, for for energy. If you're trying to yeah. lose weight or you're just at homeostasis if you're trying to maintain your weight. The idea that you're going to deliberately, you know, use up your glu- your your glucose stores and have to rely on you know, burning amino acids or whatever is just nonsense. There's no advantage to that in terms of your net loss of calories. Yeah. If you're trying to optimize your exercise, when you do have time to exercise, you're trying to optimize it. You want to be healthy. You want to build muscle. You want to have endurance. You want everything that you want to feel good. You want everything to function well. You want to be hydrated. You want to have glucose for fuel. You want to be optimal, right? You want that engine to be working. You don't want to be stressing it out and being on your emergency reserves. It doesn't make any sense. All right, guys, let's go on to science or fiction. It's
2: time for science or fiction.
1: Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Just three news items this week. No theme. You guys ready?
2: Yes. Yes. Bob, Bob is. All right.
1: Item number one, a new analysis of the English language over 1,000 years finds that word use changes in unpredictable ways and is strongly influenced by high-profile individuals. Item number two, a new study finds that American 19-year-olds are as sedentary as 60-year-olds. And item number three, a survey of 2,000 exoplanets finds a distinct gap in the size of worlds from 1.75 to 2.0 times the size of Earth for as yet unknown reasons. <clears throat> Bob, was that you clearing your throat? I was going to make you go first this week anyway, Bob. Go ahead. <laughs> ah! Yeah, the throat clearing. It ah, every yeah. time.
0: So they looked at the English language over a thousand years. The word use changes in unpredictable ways strongly influenced by high-profile individuals. Sure, I mean, what the hell? I mean, who would disagree with that? It wouldn't surprise me if it was like, if it wasn't high-profile people. Both I kind of construct an argument in my head for either one. So let's go to the next one here. Nin- American 19-year-olds as sedentary as 60-year-olds. I totally buy that. I mean, that's one of the things I've been reading for years about just how sedentary uh, kids are compared to previous generations. So that I'm totally buying that. Third one now, we've got... um 2000 exoplanets finds a distinct gap in the size of worlds from 1.75 to two times the size of Earth for a shit. What? That's the gap between 1.75 and 20? Like they're not finding, they're not finding exoplanets that are 1.85? That's the gap? That's correct. Yeah, that just seems like too arbitrary and yeah, so I'll say the exoplanets uh, fiction.
2: Okay, Evan. Ooh, um, okay, English language. Thousand years. That is interesting. Strongly influenced by high-profile individuals. I don't know about that. It's like a top-down design, in a sense. You're sort of arguing in a certain way here, and I would think it's more... Uh, disorganized ground up.
0: I could see somebody. I could see somebody. You know, making you know, making a new phrase like you know, prime the pump, and everyone starts saying it.
1: You know. <laughs> <laughs> Good one, I wonder if we're gonna get that reference from when we listen back to the show five years from now. Probably not. Oh, yes, we <laughs> Let's,
2: hope oh, we we Let's hope we do <laughs> uh, The second one. The study finds American nineteen-year-olds are as sedentary as sixty-year-olds. Wow, this is terrible. But in a sad way, I have a feeling this one's going to be right. <laughs> and then the last one, the survey of 2000 exoplanets. A gap. There's a gap. Gee whiz. I, I don't know. Gee. So it's either that one or it's the language one. Gee whiz. I'm leaning towards the language one being the fiction. Again, I think this, how you describe it, Steve, is kind of a top down formation where I think rather it's, uh, it's just the opposite. I think it's, uh, I think it's because of the unpredictable nature it would be from the ground up. So I'll say that one's the fiction.
4: Okay, Jay. The first one about the English language in over a thousand years, uh, a thousand year study, I guess. Um, interesting. Sure. I mean, I, I would agree that high profile individuals, the way that they use language, I mean, by the sheer fact that they're high profile means that they have exposure, which could easily be a strong you know, source of influence on people. Why not? That makes a lot of sense. Um, And then the changes are unpredictable. How would you predict the changes in language if it's inherently unpredictable? So that one is science. The second one here is um, also, I I think the second one here is science, that American 19-year-olds are are as sedentary as 16-year-olds. I have certainly, through my anecdotal research, witnessed this, which doesn't mean that much to me other than the fact that I believe everything I see, so therefore I'm correct and I've already won and the game is over. No.
2: Game um, over man. No,
4: I I think that this is science as well. I really don't like this third one. I agree with Bob. I think it's kind of weird and arbitrary. You know, it, it was everything that Bob was saying about, it, you know, why does that gap exist and he just thinks you know 2000 exoplanets everything. It just I'm not seeing anything here that I I'm, I'm buying, so that one's the fiction. Okay, Kara.
3: The thing that bugs me about the English language one is that I'm not sure it feels internally invalidated, like in, internally inconsistent. Like it seems like a conflict to say that they change in unpredictable yays, ways, yet they are strongly influenced by high-profile individuals. Like that's a predictable pattern. So I don't, I don't know. That one bugs me because I feel like yeah, there's internal problems with the way that's written. Um, and a survey of 2,000 exoplanets finds a distinct gap in the size of worlds. From I mean, I don't know, 1.75 to 2 times. To- I mean, that's so random. And if so, you know, it's a fluke, but it still could happen. 2,000 is a big number, but it's not that big compared to all the exoplanets that exist in the universe. I think I have to G, W, B, J. Sorry, E. Mm. (laughs) I'm going to go with the exoplanets.
1: All right. Mm. So you guys all agree on the middle one. So we'll start there. A new study finds that American 19-year-olds are as sedentary as 60-year-olds. You guys all think this one is science. And this is science. Science yeah yes. boom so yeah so this is again a very big survey and they used a lot of accelerometer data from smartphones
0: <laughs> awesome <laughs> huh. yeah
1: and they found that yeah man teenagers are sedentary 13 to 19 year olds bad so it, and over the course of the life so the only age group in which activity levels increase was the in people after 20, they tend to increase their activity level, and they sort of maintain activity till from 20 to 35, and then after 35, activity level generally peters off. So it's low wow. in kids; it's low as we get past 35. We're only really physically active from 20 to 35. Oh
3: crap! Pretty much only every, got two more years.
2: Pretty much every <laughs> age
1: group though doesn't get enough physical activity according to like the World Health Organization recommendations. So everybody needs to be moving more, walking more.
2: Yes. Yeah, especially Americans, perhaps.
1: Well, it's not no, certainly not unique to Americans. This is now more of a global phenomenon.
2: So, what is it? Is it
4: the video games?
1: I'm, I'm sure that's playing a role. There's just yes, yeah, you know, it's a lot of draw for screen time. You know. Okay. Well, let's go back to number one.
0: I'm, I'm predicting that that Steve pulled a trick on us, guys. A new analysis Ooh, of the English
1: language over 1,000 years finds that word use changes in unpredictable ways and is strongly influenced by high-profile individuals. Evan, you are standing alone in thinking that this one is the fiction. Okay. Everyone else thinks this one is science. Kara, I was interested by your interpretation, but what if an individual is introducing a quirky change to the language? Wouldn't that be inherently Mm -hmm. unpredictable?
3: It would be unpredictable depending on, again, how you define predictability. I think that it would be predictable it's predictably unpredictable. It's predictable in the sense that you could probably point to the thought leaders, the individuals who are yeah. most likely to influence change. But yeah, you're not going to know what word they introduce. Yeah, we all right,
2: say nuclear exactly. now, so. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah, all of us. It feels yeah. okay, so like <laughs> one of us. This one is.
0: The fiction. Good it job. The oh, fiction. my oh, God. Holy. He screwed us. Uh, I knew
4: it. I knew oh, it.
3: Dang oh. it. Almost
4: Wait a second. Us. Which one is the fiction? Does one. Which <laughs> is
3: the fiction? <laughs> <laughs> the nuclear one. Right. Sweet
4: Jesus. Eruption. No. It can't be. Yes, sure, he screwed
0: us. He screwed us, Jay. He, he knew we read it, and he screwed us. Did you read it? <laughs> oh, I didn't even you read it. it. Oh, That's hilarious. Because
1: it says it says right there in the t- It's the opposite. It's very systematic and predictable. Uh, the changes that occur over the long, the long period of time, I and see. here's the way in which it is predictable. And Kara, this reminds me so much of like the what's the word segments that we do. Mm-hmm. So one pattern that is very common is that word usage starts out as very concrete and then gets progressively abstract and disembodied and yeah, internalized. Go. It goes from
2: yep. order to chaos. So
1: in other words if you have a word like reflection reflection refers to light bouncing off a of reflective surface that's a very external concrete physical concept and then over time the word starts to become more abstract then we talk about like reflecting on your life it becomes mm-hmm. more abstract personal and internal right cool. or using light to mean physical light or mental light Right.
3: Well, and a lot of people would argue. A lot of linguists would argue that that's actually how language was formed as well. Well, yeah. Like so we've talked about this. We talked right? about, about disembo- like, yeah, so embodied yeah. cognition.
1: But the question is: given that there, there's, there's multiple of these types of patterns in the language, is that I, that made me question: is embodied cognition really the phenomenon, or is it just the tendency for concrete words to be co opted? For progressively more abstract meanings and metaphors. Yeah, because th-
3: that's a more inclusive umbrella. Yes. It's just that embodied cognition would fall under that. It's a that, special really case of it. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So
1: maybe it's more of a ling- of a linguistic phenomenon. But again, how could you really separate linguistic and cognitive phenomena? But
3: well, yeah, that's what, what symbolic interactionism yeah. is, right? It's like language is how we know, th- like how right. we have the intellect that we have. But
1: the directionality they found was very predictable, and. Uh, and there were these multiple, you know, aspects of words that changed predictably over the long period of time.
2: Can we extrapolate forward and real and figure out where it's going?
1: Well, it's hard. To, it's it's hard to say because you know it's it's very necessity driven. So, like when technology, like we talked about, you know, volatile, right? When technology comes around, then we have to borrow metaphorical concepts. Like we talk about opening a file and putting it in a folder and. You know, even the mouse is you know a metaphor for a physical thing so we the technology tends to use words that exi- already exist but just give them a metaphorical more um, abstract meaning uh, which is interesting so that pattern is very predictable but obviously it's like evolution is, has patterns that are predictable but you don't know exactly what's going to evolve into what over time it's not that level of predictability very cool mm. Uh, and we see that again, Kara, like when we talk about a word that started out as meaning this and then like it started out meaning flying and then it turned Mm -hmm. into computer memory, you know, or it turned into, you know, evaporation. How did we get from A to B? It's because it's a, it's a metaphor. It's this yeah, a- and
3: those steps along the way, they really, it's, they trend, obviously, they utilize the metaphor as they trend, but they do trend into a, a less uh, yeah. physical and more kind exactly. of ethereal. Exactly. Yeah. And they it's call that
1: metaphorical mapping. So linguists do metaphorical mapping to see how words change over time. Very cool. Hmm. Very okay. Cool. All of this means that a survey of 2000 exoplanets finds a distinct gap in the size of worlds from 1.75 to two times the size of Earth for as yet unknown reasons is science. So yeah, they did it. They did it. Now there's been, we, we know of over 3,500 exoplanets, but these were 2000 that they were able to measure in more precisely. So we have a precise data on their size and there is this distinct gap in this size range. There there's a couple of worlds who fall
0: into that gap, but statistically it's a void. Um, and two thousand well, wasn't is enough. the gap wasn't the gap between Earth and super Earths and the mini Jupiters? I mean that's yeah, the gap. That's the gap. But Earth with super Earths going up to one point
1: seven five times the size of the Earth and the mini Neptunes pick up at two times the Earth. So why is there the gap? That's did you read this news item
0: too? I skimmed it, but I apparently didn't look, read it close enough. Yeah.
1: So here's the, so here's the possible explanations. We don't know why, but there's the, here's the hypothesis so far that once a planet gets big enough, it, it becomes big enough to accumulate hydrogen and helium. And once it can accumulate a little bit, it sort of jumps the gap and gets enshrouded in hydrogen and helium enough to bump it up to like the two times the, the Earth size. Does that make sense? Cause then, cause it does jump also to the mini, Neptunes that are, that are very gaseous. So it'd be very, it's just, it's like, uh, it's like being on top of a hill, you know, that 1.75 to 2.0 range. It's very unstable. Like a planet would have to have just the right amount of, of, uh, hydrogen in the atmosphere. And it would tend to go one way or the other, you know, to either lose its atmosphere and go down or gain atmosphere and go up, leaving that size range relatively void. Um anyway so that that's the that's the hypothesis as to why that happens but statistically it's definitely there. What's good is that you know, the the again, the the astronomers who are writing in the study saying that the you know the the galaxy the universe likes to make planets that are earth sized, you know that uh, there's a lot of rocky planets right around the size of earth. Yeah. Mm. There's another category which are like the mini neptunes and then the gas giants. Which are like the Jupiter, Saturn-sized worlds, going up from there. But it's, yeah, it's 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 great that now we have enough data points that we could start to make some statistical statements about what typical planets are like. Although still. Our data is very skewed by our you know, selection bias by the methods we're using to find them.
0: Absolutely, because the, uh, most of the planets that we're finding are within the orbit of Mercury, which is like a yeah. third, a third of an AU. Oh, so gosh, it's, so uh, to me that it's, it's really skewed because those are the easy ones to find, of course. So, but we're not, we're three times the distance of the typical exoplanets. So to me, it is a very biased survey, even now with four, over like 4,000 exoplanets. Right.
1: Right, and it may be biasing the size as well, but I think not so much the placement. Definitely, it's easy it's, for the for the transit method. You know, the, it's the closer planets that are easy to find. Yeah, uh, both because the period is small. Like if you have a like, we would never be able to find a uh, a Neptune. Oh God! By yeah. the transit method, because it would take literally hundreds of years, you know, to confirm it. Uh, but then you could use the wobble of the star. So. Large planets that are far away will have a gravitational influence on the star. We could detect them that way, and if they if they're big and far enough out, you could then you know obscure the the star and actually see the light from the planets. And we found some planets that way as well. But yeah, so I, yeah, I wonder how, you know what it's going to take to like really get thorough surveys of of enough solar systems. You know, where we have enough different methods of finding planets that there's no more selection bias. We're finding all of them. You know. Yeah. All right.
4: Good job, Evan. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Okay, Ev.
2: Yeah. Great,
4: everyone.
1: Evan. And, oh, Evan. Geez. As a reward, <laughs> a bitter, as a reward, a you get to there. read us the quote. Oh, <laughs> I like that. I like that.
2: Most people cherish their memories, but I know from my work just how much fiction is already in there. Oh, wow! And that was from an interview with Elizabeth Loftus, American cognitive psychologist and expert on human memory. She's conducted extensive research on the malleability of human memory, best known for her groundbreaking work on the misinformation effect and eyewitness memory and the creation and nature of false memories, including recovered memories of childhood sexual abuse. She, yeah. again, reminds us of just how terrible our memories are at yeah. things. Or what should I say, you know, we like to em- embellish things, uh, whether willingly or not, or not, very much subconsciously. Uh all kinds of stuff filters you know gets in there, and it's tough to suss it out and filter out what what really happened and you know what's an embellishment
1: you can't do it from memory alone you have to you need external evidence
2: you need uh, recorders you need to keep a audio diary, a podcast or something yeah. to remember all the and crazy things you said
1: whenever whenever you have the opportunity to test your memory against objective recording of information you it's always terrible. your memory's always way off, you know. Especially in the details.
2: Yeah, especially in the details, and even in high, very high-profile events, we've talked about what everyone was doing when, you know, where were you when the space shuttle yeah. Challenger exploded, or that's yeah, a flashbulb memory. JFK, the, right? Flashbulb. Yeah, they're terrible too.
4: It, it's disturbing when you really let it sink in. You just have to question everything. Like I have memories where I'm like, I remember remembering that. It doesn't matter.
3: Yeah, you do have to question. Yeah, everything. Yeah, it's a shame. Jay, do you remember that your brain pulsates in your skull? Uh, I was uh, <laughs> a few nights ago,
4: like that. That screwed with me for about ten minutes, oh, no. and I'm like, "Oh <laughs> no!" Like, yep. The thing that perceives my reality and remembers everything that I am is wiggling like a f- worm. <laughs> it doesn't More like wiggle a bowl, like a bowl worm. Jello. Bowl of
3: jello. No, it pulses jello. with your yeah. Pulse Pol- because-
4: pulsating jello.
1: If I took it out of your skull and put it on the table, it would quiver like that. Then it would be like jello.
2: When it's
4: alive and it's getting a blood source, it's wriggling like a worm in the jungle.
3: (laughs) Jungle worm? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) (laughs)
1: All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.